This podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy Honors Program, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the Christian faith and biblical creation. Launching early 2019, the program offers video and audio training with downloadable course workbooks, expert interviews, and exclusive Q&A sessions with leading creation scientists and apologists, quarterly ebooks covering a wide variety of subject matter, and even a private Facebook community where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. If you want to be notified when the program goes live and even help us design the experience from the ground up, head on over to www.jointca.co today and sign up for the waitlist. You'll get early access to the private Facebook group for free as a thank you for joining. You're listening to the Steve Schramm Show, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in apologetics and creation science. And we're excited to be with you again uh, today and going to be wrapping up our second in a two-part little mini-series on seven ways to identify a bad argument. Seven ways to identify a bad argument. And we talked about the first three of those ways just last week. And this week we're going to dive into the final four uh, of those seven ways to identify a bad argument. And if you'll remember, we are um, doing this using questions. We're using questions to help us identify um, logical deficiencies or logical fallacies inside of um, arguments. Now, of course, we are um, applying this particularly to arguments that are used against God, okay, against the biblical notion of God. However, much of this, in fact, all of this, uh, applies the other direction. This is a two-way street, okay? Um, Logical argumentation, it's um, it's so very important that we make these connections, that we argue cogently and intelligently for the things that we believe, and that is because we expect uh, others to argue that way, for one. Another reason is because we understand as Christians where logic and rationality come from. These things come from the mind of God. As a matter of fact, and I don't have the link in front of me, but I'll put it in the show notes, Dr. Jason Lyle uh, has written an excellent article on his website. It's on the biblicalscienceinstitute.com, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And the title of his article there is, uh, it's an older one too. Um, I think he wrote it earlier this year or either even late last year. And it's titled Logic, Our Moral Obligation. And he argues there in that particular blog post that, uh, according to the scripture, we actually have a moral obligation to be logical. And that is because God is 
logical. And uh, God um, has created us in his image. We are to be uh, like God. Of course, that is our ultimate, uh, uh, to, to attain our ultimate purpose is something like to become as much like Christ as we possibly can. And we find from various scriptures that Christ is the very foundation for logic, rationality, knowledge, for all of these things. And thus we should be uh, doing our best, and indeed it is our moral obligation to, um, as I believe it was Kepler once said, think um, God's thoughts after him. And so that is the kind of thing that we want to do, and we want to make sure that uh, we ourselves live up to the same kind of standard that we are holding other people up to. And, um, you know, I was thinking about uh, something, you know, I mentioned uh, just last week, uh, I was uh, listening to the Unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierly, and I was listening to a bait between Dr. John Lennox and Dr. Lawrence Krauss, and I told you about that last week. Well, incidentally, the day before I'm recording this podcast, I was listening to another debate uh, on the Unbelievable podcast. It was another older one. I think it was maybe last year or the year before. And it was between David Wood and Michael Shermer. And these are two individuals. Michael Shermer is no stranger. Uh, I don't know that we've ever mentioned him before here on this podcast, but in any sense, he is the uh, he is a very prominent atheistic speaker and figurehead and debater. Um, I believe he is over Skeptic Magazine. I hope I'm saying that right. I think it might be it might be Skeptic Magazine. I can't remember exactly. Uh, he's maybe the editor over there. But in any, any sense, he's a very popular writer, speaker, um, and debater when it comes to these issues. And um, I was listening to this debate. And again, this I mean, this is not that long ago, right? I mean, this is last year or the year before. And I really think it was last year, 2017. That, uh, that that he was doing this debate with David Wood. And um, frankly, frankly, the arguments that he was putting out there, I mean, they were just awful. I mean, I, I, I mean, who who designed the designer, you know, God of the gaps? I mean, these kind of things that, you know, if you've spent a year in apologetic circles, you have learned how to soundly refute such arguments. You I mean you really? I mean, not even um, you know. It doesn't take being uh, incredibly learned in these subjects uh, to be able to create a rational defense against some of these standard kind of arguments that are used that are thrown out there. And this is, you know, this is what bothers me. And again, we're on a bit of a rabbit trail, but this is what bothers me about that. Dr. Shermer knows that there are cogent, rational responses that have been offered to those challenges. He knows this. He knows this. He's one of the most prominent atheists in the country, certainly, but maybe even in the world. He knows that there are sound rebuttals to these arguments, not just hand-waving. I mean, sound rebuttals. And um, and he still just throws them out there and throws them out there. And again, it's, you know, and he uses the whole, 
you know, sense of um, uh, evolutionary morality. Well, you want to know why something is evil? Well, you know, an, an, an act is evil. Well, just ask the person who it asked to. They'll tell you that it's evil. And he has these little one-liners and these rhetorical statements that he can make headway with the crowd with, but a moment's reflection on the statement itself and unpacking it can teach you um, uh, so much about what is wrong with these kind of arguments. And um, in one sense, what I'm doing right now is just testifying a bit and thanking the Lord that he allows me to be in these circles, that he allowed me to discover the enterprise of apologetics and to see just how um, legitimate that it is to be able to think through these issues. Now, I have to say, and I'm guessing that this is what um, Dr. Shermer is banking on, which is why it, which is why it really bothers me because it's so intellectually dishonest. But I'm I'm banking on the fact that he realizes these debates are oftentimes carried out in front of individuals who have never been introduced to rational argumentation for Christian ideas. Now, in one sense, it's a good thing that it's happening in this setting, because at least in this type of setting, there's usually a Christian thinker there to uh, help, you know, dissuade some of the concerns. You know, I think we've all been there before, where we've heard maybe an objection for the first time raised by someone in a debate. But it's not the first time that the Christian debater has heard the argument. And so they are able to come back with a cogent response that makes sense. And it makes sense to us and it speaks to us as Christians. Um, And so I really appreciate uh, that about the apologetic enterprise. But it's um, really something to think that there was a time when some of those very arguments that he used that now are laughable and frankly I'm a little upset that there are um, people who are supposed to be bastions of reason and logic still using such bad arguments I'm upset about that now for that reason when just maybe a few years ago I would have been upset about it because those could have been potentially faith destroying ideas and man that is really something to think about this is how important it is that we that we get apologetics into our daily lives as Christians, into our churches as Christians. Get it out there. Teach others about the rationality of the faith. Yes, there are certainly those people who, uh, you know, they just have a little bit stronger faith muscle maybe than the rest of us, and they're just able to to faith away all the rational argumentation of, of skeptics. Um, but you know what? Some of us some of us aren't that lucky. Some of us have to actually do some work to get to the bottom of what we, what we believe, and it takes some convincing for us to let go of old ideas and hold on to um, new ones. Um, However, at the same time, when we're challenged with new ideas that could possibly shake our faith, you know, for some of us, it's harder to deal with than others. And so the apologetic enterprise helps us for confidence sake. Remember, we promote on this podcast confidence for the Christian and a challenge to the skeptic and and how to provide that challenge to the skeptic in a gracious way. You know, these are things that we deal with, but um, I think it's more important than ever. The more I listen to these kinds of debates, you know, every now and then, just to be frank, every now and then I hear a good novel argument 
But for the most part, I could honestly say, that when I, I listen to these debates, it's usually a repeat of the same five to six things over and over again, and each of them have been very soundly refuted by Christian thinkers and scholars who are well recognized in their fields for their expertise. So, I, you know, um, I once heard J.P. Moreland say, you know, look, you know, he was speaking to a lay audience, and he's like, look, it's it, contrary to popular belief, all the smart guys are not working for the other team. And that is so, so true. And, you know, it goes even further than that. You know, you would think, based on some of the, uh, the, the way that the world is right now, I mean, you would think that atheism is just rampant. But you know, it's really not. You know, only 2%, roughly, if my numbers are still correct on this, and I think they are, only about 2% of the world's population consider themselves to be some form of atheist. Most people are very spiritual people. They uh, they believe that there is something greater. They are not reductionistic physicalists, all right? This is not representative of the majority of the world. And that's maybe one downfall to, uh, to, to being involved so much with apologetics is you, um, you do uh, encounter with an unusual number of hard core atheistic materialistic thinkers but most of the world is not like this so get out you know share your faith don't be afraid to tell others about christ and to be able to raise those objections ask good questions uh, and get to the bottom of objections people have because again even though there are more people who wouldn't consider themselves to be in those categories many times those people are still exposed to the teaching and the philosophy of uh, the ones who are. I'm, I'm like, for instance, Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a very popular teacher on on the subject of neuroscience and uh, meditation and things like that. Not everything that he says is all about being an atheist. However, those views creep in, um, and sometimes they don't creep. Sometimes they're blatant in his other kinds of communications. So. We have to be aware that the world that we're living in is exposed to things like that and get out there and go do our job as apologists. First uh, Peter 3.15 still addresses everybody. Amen. So we need to really, really work on that. Real quick, before I dive into the main event here, uh, talking about these last four uh, questions we can ask um, to be able to identify a bad argument, I want to uh, reiterate from last week, I uh, put out there a call for help uh, for a transcriptionist to help uh, transcribe my videos that I do on a weekly basis. Again, I'm trying to get those shorter and shorter. I want those to be between three and five minutes. Um and if they are, it won't be much transcription work at all, but it, it, it right now it is more than I have time to do. So um, if that is something you'll be willing to help with, you have time to help with, and it, I mean, it would just be listening to a video and writing down the words in the video, just transcribing the video for me uh, one time a week, probably be something like a thousand to a fifteen hundred words. Uh, but again, you don't have to um, manufacture the words. You just have to write down the words that I say and you know use the correct punctuation um, and things like that. So if that's something you would be interested in helping me with, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes, but please just shoot an email to steve at steveshram.com. Thank you so very much. Okay, so let's talk about um, 
the rest of these seven ways to identify a bad argument. Just by way of very, very quick review, last week we um, identified what amounts to three different logical fallacies. One of those logical fallacies, the first one we talked about was the ad hominem attack. The ad hominem attack. And simply put, this is when a person attacks uh, you or consequently when you attack a person rather than uh, the actual argument put forward um, being dealt with. Okay. So, um, that's pretty straightforward. Usually, when people don't have a rational argument for their position, they resort to ad hominem attacks. All they can think to do at that point, by way of argument, is to attack you. And that is a telltale sign that somebody is running in defense because they do not have rational support for their view. But again, two-way street two-way street, it's very, very easy for you to fall into this trap and begin doing the same kind of thing. So you want to make very sure that when you are engaging with a person, you're engaging with their view and with their argument and not with them as a person. And one of the easiest ways to combat this from our perspective is just simply to remember that each and every person we dealt with is made in the image of God. If we deal with a person, they're made in the image of God just like you and me. And for that, we should maintain the utmost of respect and be able to engage them without having to directly attack their character. The second one we dealt with was called a non sequitur. And this is what happens when the conclusion of someone's argument does not follow from the premise or the premises that have been laid out. Remember, we discussed that one of the easiest ways to tell whether or not an argument's conclusion followed from its premises was to insert the word therefore smack dab in between the premises and the conclusion. If you cannot put the word therefore and come up with a logically sound kind of argument, then it's obvious that something is wrong somewhere in the argument. Now that practice doesn't necessarily tell you where. It, it doesn't identify specifically what is bad with the argument. It just helps you identify that the argument does not go through on a logical basis. And from there, you can say, you know, I'm sorry, did, did you realize that just because, um, you know, X and Y are, uh, are the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that your conclusion follows. Okay, so be sure to work through that when you are talking with somebody and help them to realize that their arguments uh, need some refining. The third one we dealt with last week was the uh, fallacy of assumption, the false assumption. And with the false assumption, what we have is a situation where somebody uh, concludes an argument that might be a reasonable conclusion given the assumption that they have, but it might be that their assumption is unreasonable. And it might be that 
because they are using an unreasonable assumption, they're not coming to the correct conclusion. And again, uh, I don't want to go too far into the example on that one because it was a bit detailed. So I'll just invite you to go back into last week's lesson. And uh, that was lesson number 64. And uh, take a lesson to or take a listen, excuse me, to that. All right, moving on to this week's content. We want to talk about the remaining four ways to identify a bad argument. And we are looking, of course, at four more logical fallacies that we can use a question to get to the bottom of the arguments that are advanced and determine if these logical fallacies are in use. And maybe I should reiterate here again that uh, while you are learning more about this subject matter, it is going to take you a while to think through someone's arguments and to realize when logical missteps are happening and to point those out. Maybe one practical tip I could give you along these lines is to try out your evangelistic apologetical skills online before you do them in person. I find that written dialogue, although sometimes it can, um, what's the word I'm looking for, disintegrate rather quickly depending on the character of the people who are conversing. It is still a helpful medium for being able to clarify your thoughts because you have time to think uh, about what the other person has said and think about your response. So there's a sense in which as long as everybody involved is willing to engage rationally and maintain a healthy demeanor and character, there's a sense in which online discussions could be more productive to accomplish the goal with which you set out. So I would encourage you to try these things out in that context because it will help you to think through them. And then whenever you encounter them in person and you begin speaking with people and defending your faith in more personal encounters, you'll be able to recognize them there too and you won't have to think about them as hard. Uh, again, nowadays, now that I've spent some time studying and engaging, you know, I could uh, point these things out, pick these things out in a conversation pretty much on the fly as they're happening. I can see them happening right in front of me, but it wasn't always this way. I used to would have had to use questions such as these to evaluate when this was happening in a discussion. So that's why I'm offering them to you. I think it will be a helpful way, a helpful exercise, especially if you are newer to this discussion, for how to begin to recognize logical missteps or fallacies in arguments that are advanced, and of course, how to avoid them in your own argumentation. So uh, this first one, or I, I guess I should say the uh, fourth one that we want to look at, here's the question. Does the argument accomplish anything for the overall view? Does the argument accomplish anything for the overall view? Now, this is called, essentially, the fallacy of irrelevant thesis. A quick illustration might help you to see how this argument could manifest itself. Suppose you have a plane crash uh, that takes place. And as a matter of fact, you are a passenger of this plane and the pilot 
is able to 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 get the plane landed. However, everyone on the plane, except for you, has died. Everyone's gone. You're the only person on this entire airliner crash who has survived the incident. Naturally, the reporter is very interested in your story. And the reporter comes over to you and she asks you, how, how is it? How do you think, why do you think that you are the lone survivor of this flight? What kept you alive? Suppose you replied with something like this. Well, I don't really know, but I'm here, aren't I? I survived. I'm here, therefore, I must have survived. Well, obviously, you can see that he is just merely stating the obvious. You, in this case, in this story, are merely stating the obvious, right? Uh, you are not actually providing any logical argumentation. You haven't offered evidence such as the flotation device. Um, maybe it was water landing, and there was a flotation uh, device that kept you alive. You haven't offered that, uh, you know, maybe you found a place in the, in, the, in the plane that, you know, you hid behind some seats or something that were, you know, the, you know special padding. You know, I don't know. Uh, whatever it is that you did in order to survive the crash maybe and I'm being a little facetious but maybe you know precisely the moment the plane collided and made impact everybody else died from the shock of the impact but you jumped at precisely the second that was necessary in order for you to not experience you know I, I don't know I'm just I'm being silly but the point is that you've not offered anything like that you've not given the slightest shred of evidence for why it is that you're the sole survivor of the aircraft you've just merely stated again that you are i don't know but i must have survived because here i am i wouldn't be talking to you if i hadn't survived now many times this kind of um situation happens when folks are attempting to argue for darwinian evolution and especially those who don't have uh, any rational arguments for their view. Now, there are plenty of people, and I don't want to straw man anybody here, so there are plenty of people who could come to the table with arguments for Darwinian evolution that um, make sense. They require some picking apart, uh, but on the face of it, at least, they are, they're, they're at least an argument that has some sort of merit to it. Uh, there are people who can come to the table with that. However, the majority of people, and I mean the majority of people, and we're talking about at the university level and everything, merely assume that evolution is true because most scientists think that it is. They accept it. Now, um, that fact in itself is not necessarily where the fallacy comes in. Now, it could be. There is a fallacy in there that that we're not necessarily going to discuss. Um, they could be, in that sense, uh, appealing to the majority, um, where they just say, well, the majority believes this thing, and so now I will believe this thing. The problem is that the majority might only believe it because the rest of the majority uh, believe it, and so that is a self-defeating kind of um, fallacy. But, Nevertheless, a person in this position might say something like this. Well, I am here. You are 
here, there is no God. We must have evolved. But you see, there's no rational argument there. It's just merely a person stating that it must be the case because how else would it have happened? This is the fallacy of irrelevant thesis. It's irrelevant to the discussion whether or not we are here. Of course we're here. We wouldn't be here to talk about whether or not evolution were true um, if we weren't here. But that that fact in itself does not necessitate that evolution is true. That's the very thing in question. Um, so this is an example of the fallacy of irrelevant thesis. This is how you, you pick it out in a discussion. Does the argument accomplish anything for the overall view? Now, I don't want to confuse this with a red herring. Uh, a red herring happens when somebody steps in and they uh, they they respond to your argument by raising a new issue that is completely irrelevant to the discussion in order to distract the conversation. But that's not what this is. This is merely stating some this is merely somebody stating that uh, essentially we know that whatever the argument is in question is the case uh, because otherwise, you know, we're not here. We wouldn't be here to discuss it, to talk about it. Um, and so this is uh, probably one of the most common ways, at least in the origins debate and many times in apologetics, um, how uh, this kind of thing manifests itself. All right. The fifth question that we want to ask is this. Can the argument stand on its own apart from the credibility of the authority that has been appealed to? Can the argument stand apart from the credibility of the authority that has been appealed to? And of course, we're discussing here something called the phallus, or excuse me, the uh, faulty appeal to authority. The faulty appeal to authority. Now, I don't think this one requires much illustration or. Uh, or or clarification, but there are a couple things to note. It is okay, of course, to cite your sources and to appeal to uh, an authority. Okay, um, there, it's not necessarily a fallacious move when you are quoting from a source who meets a couple of criteria. All right. So if the person is actually an expert in their field, then it is not necessarily a faulty appeal to authority. All right. If um, somebody is attempting to make an argument for creation from developmental, you know, cell biology and quotes Dr. Nathaniel Jensen, for example, who works over there at Answers in Genesis, uh, this would be a legitimate move, okay? He is an authority on developmental and cell biology. Now, would he be as equal an authority on something like, you know, um, population genetics? Well, I would say probably not. Now, he certainly understands the field, he, uh, you know, I think he has probably spent some time evaluating those things and probably has some meaningful things to say. So I'm not suggesting that we could just dismiss what somebody in a related field has to say about it. 
But to appeal to them as an authority would be faulty uh, insofar as the person is not an expert. Okay, so that's one uh, way in which it would not be faulty. All right, another way to kind of tell whether or not it's it's a, a faulty appeal is if the um, experts claim itself is actually shown to be wrong or contrary to the evidence that uh, that they are offering. All right, so this I think is sort of obvious. Somebody being an expert in their field does not override logical argumentation if their actual argument suffers from any of for example, the seven uh, kinds of logical fallacies that we're talking about in this uh, little two-part series, then that presents a problem. Um, similarly, if there are just if they're just flat out wrong uh, for reasons that are specific to their to their field that others have shown, um, then this is another case in which it would be uh, actually faulty to appeal to um, that. Uh, to that person as the expert. All right, now a third way that this could happen is if other experts in the same field take the exact opposite position. All right, um, so when somebody is um, attempting to use this authority as though it is the end-all be-all, as though what they say is definitely the case without a doubt how can that how can that be if somebody in the same field espouses the exact opposite claim well the only way to adjudicate on that is to go back to the field to adjudicate the arguments between them and again to revisit this whole notion of whether or not the argument itself is fallacious okay so it's not merely a matter of appealing to an expert here you're going to have to offer some sort of logical argumentation okay and then the last way to tell whether or not it's um a, a fallacious argument uh or a a, a a yeah a faulty appeal to authority is related to what we just mentioned but it's to treat a fallible expert as infallible. I mean, it's, it's as if um, because of somebody's, you know, recognition in some field or whatever, if they are being treated as though they are able to pontificate infallibly in their field, um, we know this is not true because human beings are fallible. We're fallible human beings. We make mistakes. So we cannot... Um, for example, treat anybody's scientific interpretation on the same level as Scripture, for example, because these are just not the same kinds of thing. Scripture is inerrant. People are not. All right, so we have to understand that. Now, um, I think there are many examples that you could uh, use to illustrate this. And I think you'll be able to pick out these faulty appeals to authority quite easily, maybe more easily than uh, many other kinds of things in your particular 
um, discussions. Now, uh, Dr. Jason Lyle, in his book, Understanding Genesis, um, gives us a framework for helping us to understand the faulty appeal to authority. And indeed, uh, those four things I just gave you make up that framework to help determine whether or not the appeal is faulty. But he gives an example, and I'm going to go ahead and use his example because, frankly, I think it is a good one and kind of easy to uh, to tell what's going on. So, for example, um, he, he says, quote, Dr. Collins is an expert on genetics, and he believes that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are poetic. So they definitely are. So this is a faulty appeal by any of those standards we just mentioned. First, being an expert in genetics does not imply expertise in biblical interpretation. Two, the claim is shown to be false by examination of the text itself. Three, experts in biblical Hebrew make the opposite claim. And four, Dr. Collins is not infallible, and thus his claims cannot be considered infallible, even in his own field of study. So, understand uh, that example, I think, is a pretty clear way, whether or not you agree with my conclusions on that. Of course, I, I agree with Dr. Lyle there, of course, um, in his assessment of Dr. Collins. Of course, he's referencing there Dr. Francis Collins, the leader of the BioLogos organization. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, his his uh, examination of that is 100% true. Being an expert in genetics does not make you an expert in um, biblical Hebrew, um, Hebraists make the exact opposite claim as him. He is not um, infallible, and uh, the claim that he's made there in this example is shown to be false by examination of the text itself. Genesis is not Hebrew poetry. Um, so this, to me, becomes um, quite a helpful way to understand the faulty appeal to authority. All right? The next one that we want to work with, number six here, is this question. Can the argument be reduced to disliking of the consequences or implications? And this is called, aptly, the fallacy of consequence. The fallacy of consequence. Uh, you know, this is not hard to recognize because it's the kind of arguments that our children make. Uh, our children are typically not able to engage in rational discussion until they are quite older. And some would argue that that, in fact, uh, that day never comes. Okay. Um, I don't know. Of course, I still have a, I've got an almost three-year-old and almost two-year-old and then a, a couple week old. I guess he's about a month now. So, um, we are in the very early stages of this, but already my uh, two-year-old creates quite a few arguments that fall according to the fallacy of consequence. One of his latest things is just to simply say, I don't want to. I don't want to. And of course, the, the logical conclusion there, if we're going to assess this, you know, is that he just simply doesn't want to do what it is. He doesn't like the consequences, the thing that is involved with me having to do the request that I've asked of him. And this is a sort of the fallacy of consequence. So applied to theology, which might be a bit more applicable for the audience of this podcast, what about hell as a state of eternal conscious torment? I realize that's an exact 180 from dealing with the irrational 
uh, views of a child. But nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that is offered all the time. Somebody objects to the biblical teaching of, of hell because they argue, how could a loving God send people to hell? Now, of course, it is not our subject of discussion today to, uh, to answer that question. That's a very complex question. Uh, it has good answers, but it's a very complex question. Uh, the point is that we need to ask what the person is trying to accomplish with that statement. If they are implying that God does not exist because um, any God that creates a place where um, those who reject him would suffer eternal conscious torment, uh, if they were to say that that kind of God uh, must not exist— and certainly it wouldn't be worth serving, well, this is simply just a fallacy of consequence. This is somebody who is denying what the true nature of reality is simply because they don't like what it entails. They haven't offered, in this case, any rational argument as to why God doesn't exist. They've simply said that they don't like the consequences of such a God Existing. Who was it? Um, another example of this. Uh, Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel, the atheist philosopher out of New York who wrote the book uh, Mind and Cosmos of the last few years. He's very, very skeptical of uh, of um, this physicalist, neo-Darwinian uh, understanding in the scientific world. And so he is a, um, a great resource for many theists to quote uh, because he's kind of a hostile witness um, in that regard. However, he's on record as stating uh, quite blatantly that despite this, he doesn't want for God to exist. I believe his quote um, is roughly something like, I don't want to live in a world like that. In a world where we have to obey, right, this creator God. In a world where somebody else, other than us, makes the rules. That's ultimately a fallacy of consequence. The Bible says that men love their sin. And I don't want to wax theological on you here, but consider with me that as men suppress the truth and righteousness, as you read through Romans 1 and learn about the way that people um, deceive themselves, a lot of times all of this stems from a fallacy of consequence. They tune out the notion of, of, of God. They tune out the notion of reality simply because they don't like the consequences. What does it mean for my life if God exists. They don't like the answer to that question in their sinful, unregenerate state. And this is ultimately nothing more than a fallacy of consequence. There is no good logical argument that they've offered or even thought through in this particular kind of case. 
So when people offer these kind of things, well, I don't, I, 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 even if there was a God, I wouldn't believe in him because of a place like hell. Well, this is just a fallacy of consequence. That's an irrational reason. Now they're entitled to that. I believe God gives to every person a, um, a limited sense of free will. Okay. Um, I believe that they ultimately, if, if a person is in hell, I believe that ultimately it will be because they, in their own, of their own volition, resisted the calling of God. When somebody argues this way, it is simply a fallacy of consequence. There's no logical argument there. So I would encourage them, and you could just simply ask a question. Um, You know, is there a rational objection to the existence of God. You're certainly entitled to your opinion, but your opinion doesn't weigh in on the truth. Is there a rational objection you have to the existence of God, for example? That would be a way to move the conversation into uh, a, a, a subject of discussion that might actually be productive and fruitful for your evangelism. And finally, the eighth or not eighth, but the seventh, excuse me, question uh, that you could ask to identify a bad argument is this, and this is uh, possibly even my favorite one. Does the argument shoot itself in the foot by necessitating an absurd conclusion? I'm going to read that again. Does the argument shoot itself in the foot by necessitating an absurd conclusion? This is called a reductio ad absurdum. All right, this is the kind of argumentation I believe that as we look through the New Testament that Jesus used. I believe that Paul used this kind of argumentation in his conversations and discourses with skeptics and also the um, high religious leaders of the day. If you read through uh, your New Testament, you'll notice that whenever Jesus was interacting with these people, he always seemed to answer with a question. In nearly every case, I mean, every now and then he kind of pontificated on on on, on some ideas, um, and he corrected their faulty ideas of, of things that they um, believed from the Hebrew scriptures, but most of the time, uh, he didn't just state these things. He helped people to see the fallacious nature of their reasoning for themselves by asking them questions. And what he showed in these various cases is that the arguments they were offering shot themselves in the foot. They were absolutely absurd conclusions given the information that we have. And of course, as somebody who uh, who likes to argue from within the context of a presuppositional framework, um, my favorite arguments use this kind of um, of, uh, of structure. So for instance, For instance, the uh, transcendental argument for the existence of God, the tag, as it's affectionately known, is um, a 
a argument that trades on the notion of a reductio ad absurdum. Now, don't get me wrong. Evidentialist apologists use this kind of thing too, and they're welcome to it. Uh, in fact, I more and more I hear them using it. I'm starting to wonder if they um, if, if they aren't uh, learning something from the presuppositionalist in the sense that a lot of times uh, it's it's. It's more foundational. It's maybe a better way forward in an argument to expose someone's faulty foundation uh, than it is to attack their uh, other um, uh, beliefs that kind of float outside of that area. And so I, I see this kind of thing being used more and more. Um, and so it's like, you know, if, if things, if, if God truly is the foundation for knowledge, for rationality, if God really is holding all things together by the word of his power, if all things are dependent on Christ, if knowledge stems from the mind of God, if the fear or reverence or respect of God is the beginning of all knowledge, then for somebody to raise up an argument using knowledge and rationality against the God who makes such things possible, well, then you can obviously see somebody is sawing off the branch on which they are sitting. And this is a kind of reductio ad absurdum. It's saying, look, your conclusions are, your conclusion that God exists rests on foundational preconditions that necessitate the existence of the very God you've argued against. And this kind of thing is a reductio ad absurdum. Um, it's the it's the kind of thing. It's kind of like if you were looking at laws of logic. Now, laws of logic are a kind of authority that requires some degree of circular reasoning. If you were to argue against the laws of logic and you were to come to conclude that there were no such thing as laws of logic, the only possible way that you could do this is to use those very laws of logic to create that rational chain of reasoning that led you to the conclusion. So thus, your um, your contention that the laws of logic do not exist are refuted by the impossibility of the contrary. In other words, it's actually impossible that the laws of logic don't exist because you would need them in order to argue against them. Okay, so this same exact kind of thing um, we often apply to the um, project of arguing for our faith in general, arguing for the biblical God. And I know there are people who listen to this podcast who fall on either side of that fence. Um, me, there's a sense in which I'm, I guess, more moderate. I am a presuppositionalist, and I'm actually writing an article right now. It's going to be a, a, a lengthier article, so I'm taking my time writing it. Um, uh, and it's going to be titled, On the Place of Evidence in Presuppositional Apologetics. So um, don't, uh, you know, don't write me off here. Wait until I've had a chance to write in this uh, article my views on this, because I think there are some misunderstandings and misconceptions that come along with the enterprise of presuppositional apologetics that are not necessarily true of the view. 
So I'm going to be discussing some of those things in an article coming up on my website very, very soon. But don't let that distract from the larger point that the reductio ad absurdum, it's a valid um, um, method of logically refuting an argument, no matter what your view of apologetics is. Um, A reductio ad absurdum argument is just simply what happens when somebody is drawing a conclusion and neglecting the assumptions that depend, um, that are necessary, or the preconditions that are necessary for their conclusion to go through. Okay, you can see how this is absurd. It refutes it, it refutes itself. It shoots itself in the foot. Uh, Greg Kokel, in his book on tactics, uh, refers this as uh, refers to this as suicide. In other words, it's an argument that commits suicide. It, it shoots itself in the foot while it is uh, attempting to to um, argue for its validity. Okay, so uh, that is um, all we have for you today. All right, that is the seven ways to identify a bad argument. Again, if you haven't listened to the first um, lesson uh, in this particular little mini-series, that's the last lesson, episode 64, I encourage you to go back and take a listen to that so you get the full, uh, the full picture, all right, on how to identify a bad argument and what kind of questions you uh, can ask, all right? Why don't we say a prayer in closing? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you today and want to say thank you for giving us the ability to be able to discern and determine when these arguments that uh, that people offer are good or if they're bad. Father, I pray that you would extend the same grace to us, help us to understand, to be able to evaluate our own positions and our own arguments and help us to um, use these principles that you have so embedded into nature and into our human psyche. Uh, Lord, help us to use these principles to the betterment of our uh, our evangelistic efforts. Father, help us to remember that all philosophy, all knowledge, all science, all of these things are um, uh, only possible because you make them possible. So help us to um, remember that these are all things that need to be taken captive, Lord, and used for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, if what I've argued here today is true, Lord, we can all improve the way that we defend our faith. And I pray now that you would grant us the ability to do that and help us to think clearly through these issues and be more effective for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well, hey, look, I, I certainly appreciate you hanging out with me again uh, today on the podcast. Next week, I haven't decided exactly what we're going to do. I have an interview coming up in a couple days with um, one of the editors for a book I am reading uh, called God in the World of Insects. I'm so, so excited about this book. I think it's a great book. And um, there are some points of disagreement that I have with some of what the authors have written. Uh, And of course, this book has different contributors, and I'm going to be speaking to one of the general editors. Uh, But largely speaking, though, this is an absolutely great book. It's been very, very informative. I've learned a lot, and I've got a lot more still to learn as I'm continuously reading it. I'm not sure if I'm going to air my interview with him next week or if I'm going to go ahead and present my thoughts on the next paper from the ICC. I've already got my thoughts um, pretty organized uh, towards this next paper on creation time uh, coordinates, and I'm really excited to bring it to you. Um, I mean, guys, this really could be 
one of the most promising distant starlight solutions that have been offered thus far. Um, and so I don't know if we're going to do that next week or if we're going to air the interview next week. So it'll be a surprise. We'll see what happens. Um, but anyway, thank you for joining us this week. And uh, don't forget to go um, rate, review, uh, subscribe to this podcast if you like it if you find it helpful we want other people to be able to find it so don't forget to do that and then of course to head over to steveshram.com slash defend that is steveshram.com slash defend and that'll be in your podcast notes and that uh, link will take you to our free four lesson email course on how to defend your faith with confidence and overcome some of the toughest objections to Christianity. All right. Thank you so much. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.